This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. All right, today we're sitting down in uh, my office and we've got new mic stands and I, this new studio I'm really excited about. I just think this has worked out so well. We've got new microphone stands so we don't have to keep juggling microphones in and out, um, just hand-holding them now. They're all set up and it's it's um, it looks quite professional. I'm really happy with the way this has come up and I'm really excited to use them. So let's launch in today's, into today's podcast. Got Dr. Imran Kajani sitting with me today. Now, just a bit of a background on how I met Imran. Imran came to me as uh, asking for some accounting advice uh, about a year ago. And you were different to all of the other doctors that I've met. And I Googled you as soon as you left the building and found out what sort of stuff that you're up to. And you're in a band and you do amazing things and you just... And uh, first and foremost, you've got the radio announcer's voice. So that's very important and the listeners will really appreciate <laughs> listening to that today. I wish I had that voice. But you're a really smart person, like super smart. And I just want to go through and drill down and look, examine all of the aspects of your life up until today. And I think that everyone's going to find that really interesting story to tell. So let's. So thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um you're a GP operating in Adelaide, a general practitioner for those that aren't in the medical space. Uh, so I guess a normal day for you is sitting down in a surgery and consulting patients as they come to you with their illnesses. Pretty, pretty much. much. Pretty yep. much. And you've recently completed the GP exam, which means that you're fully ticketed as a general practitioner. That's correct. And you're super busy, like to the point where... I just saw the email that I sent to you with questions that we were going to talk about today and I sent it on the 5th of December, which is my birthday, 2017. Here we are, September 2018, and it's taken us <laughs> you know, 10 months to get to this point. So that gives an indication. And I, it wasn't from want of trying because I've tried and tried and tried. But further to that, you're renovating a house. Mm-hmm. You're working six days a week as a general practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in a band. But let's go right back to the start. So whereabouts did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up mainly in Adelaide. Uh, came here when I was five years old from Pakistan. And uh, there was some very interesting circumstances while we had to sort of pack up and leave from Pakistan and come here. But uh, when we initially came, we were in Sydney for a little while and then moved to Roxby Downs of all places, which is, I'm not sure if you know where Roxby Downs yeah, is. Yeah, know where Roxby Downs is. Yes, uh, middle of nowhere, pretty much. And that was before all the mining and things had started to... Uh, to increase over there so it was literally a one street town uh, and then from there we came to Adelaide and I did uh, all of my primary school and my high school in Adelaide now um, brothers and sisters uh, I've got an older brother uh, older sister and a younger sister so there's four of us right mm-hmm. um, and mum and dad did what, so now your dad is a GP as well he is yes um, so going to Roxby Downs was that because he was going to be the GP in the town. 
for Roxby Downs? That's correct, yeah. So we pretty much followed uh, Dad around. I mean, Dad's story is quite interesting as well. And um, Please I, tell us. I have a lot of uh, respect for that man. He used to work as a uh, police uh, forensics pathologist back in Pakistan. And there was, you know, as, as we all know, there's a lot of corruption and things that happen in that country. Because of that, there was uh, threats made on his life um, because he wouldn't help out certain people and uh, to a point where, you know, his car got sprayed with bullets. Yeah. So that, that's what prompted us to come to Australia. And when we came to Australia, he had to reset the exams to qualify as a doctor over here. And during that time, he was pushing trolleys in a supermarket and he was uh, driving trucks for a little while as well and studying at the same time. So from that point, that's why we moved around, because as soon as he got his, uh, his degree again or you know, he was allowed to work in Australia, uh, really the only places where we could work was in country towns. So that's why we went to Roxby Downs. So growing up, was money tight? Yeah. Very tight. Um, so I just want to find out a bit about your mum. Mm. Did mum work? She did. Uh, so she used to be a teacher back home uh, or back, back So that, that's a key for me mm. because often you find teaching – sorry, children whose parents are teachers mm-hmm. do extremely well because they go to school, get taught, and then they go home, and then they're also taught. And with their homework and all of that, did she – you know, did you find that that was – that. Sort of, sort of. I think that mainly was the, I guess there was a bit of discipline instilled into us from our mother and our father. But, um, you know, dad was quite busy working and mum was working as well. And she was a, uh, she came over here, became a florist and was working in a florist shop for quite some time. So there was, you know, a lot of times where we didn't see our parents, um, mm. you know, routinely, I suppose. But uh, there was a lot of discipline in the house and there was a lot of sort of, you know, um, encouragement to get good grades and be academic rather than doing other other things that we might want to do did so um did your parents encourage you to be a doctor well to tell you the truth actually my father told me not to be a doctor (laughs) which is interesting you know being a doctor himself but he could see that there was a lot changing and and from when he started working as a doctor the I guess the way people view doctors and the uh, the monetary sort of remuneration that they used to get was very different to what has happened in the last uh, you know number of years, and he could see that coming. It was going to be harder to be making the same sort of money, the uh, you know a lot less I guess respect and and honor in those sort of in that profession. So he actually encouraged me to do something else. Um, but like, I just want to touch on that for a moment and mm. interrupt because. There's almost a school of thought at the moment with some of the specialists that I speak to that they're of that same mindset now that your dad was like 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Correct. I think that because things are changing, we're always going to be wanting for the good old days, as mm-hmm. they call it. Mm-hmm. And um, you can see that in, in a lot of other professions as well, rather than just medicine, uh, where things seem to be better um, you know, a number of years ago, and, and we're sort of we feel like we might be getting a bit shortchanged, but I don't necessarily see that. I think that you know the world progresses, humans progress, we progress uh, as a society, and we just have to adapt to what's going on rather than complaining about what could have been or what it should be like. Uh, trying to work as best as we can in this current environment. 
So, you know, we'll always be wanting for something better. And I think that's mm. the nature of people that, that are, you know, fairly high achievers or, or quite driven. Um, they always want more. And whether that be money or education or success in many different forms, we always want to have something more, something else, you know, what's the next thing. So I think we'll always be feeling like we're a bit shortchanged or lacking something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So going back to study, um, so were you pushed by your parents? For study, yes. To, to achieve higher grades, definitely. Okay. So would you say your mum was like a cougar mum? Well, when I say that, like, I have a different yeah. interpretation of cougar. Sorry, maybe I'm using the wrong term. Um, yeah. No, uh, what I mean by that is, um, were you forced to do homework? Like, we, did you get in trouble if you got a B instead of an A? Um, did you have to, on weekends, not socialise with your mates, but study for tests and do assignments and that sort of stuff? Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's um, that was a quite prevalent thing in our household as well. And uh, we have this sort of running joke about when uh, if we came home with 99%, there wouldn't be a sort of, oh, you know, well done, congratulations. It was more of a, uh, what happened to the 1%? Really? <laughs> well, you know, over-exaggerating a little bit at the moment, but there was always that, well, why didn't you get 100%? If you got 90%, why did you not get 95%? So there's always that that drive to be able to do better. Um, hmm. Okay. Uh, now, so... High school? You didn't go to private school? I did. I went to a public school for primary school yeah. and I went to a private school for high school. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in Adelaide? Correct. Okay. So did dad think that it was important to move the family from Roxby down to Adelaide for education purposes of the kids? Yes. So what ended up happening was that he actually moved to Port Pirie, which is another two and a half hours mm-hmm. drive from here. And he used to live in Pirie and mum used to live here with the kids. So they only really saw each other on the weekends and we only really saw dad on the weekends as well. So that made it quite difficult. So he was starting his practice in Port Pirie and because of education, uh, we came to Adelaide and we used to live here and, uh, and you know, study here. Mum was working here and we would see dad on the weekends. And do you think having that private education was important in, in your lead up to getting good results? Like, did, did you enjoy the school? I did, yeah. Look, I think um, private education is is a good thing in many respects, but it's not all that's needed. And I think that, I mean, a perfect example of this is, is that what I saw coming from public school to a private school was that the people in the private school or the kids in the private school came from uh, families with a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a lot more money to do things that we normally didn't do in public schools and it was more so you know there was a lot of people that were using drugs and um, drinking at very young ages uh, and they had all this excessive money that they didn't really have to worry about you know worrying about the dollars and cents Um, so it was a very different environment to study in but the drive that you get from the teachers over there is completely different from uh, the push that you get from uh, teachers that I experienced in public schools as well so they were much more helpful. They were much more sort of dedicated to their students as well. And the facil- facilities were better. The, um, I guess the other people around you, they come from similar families that have got, uh, you know, high priority on education as well. So you, you had other people there that were studying hard and trying to get good grades. Whereas in public schools, you know, you come from families where you may not have very much money. So 
the focus wasn't so much on education, more so just getting through and, and trying to find a job and things like that. So I think private schools definitely do have a part to play. And you can be relatively well assured that you're going to get a relatively good education. And when I say relatively, I mean, there's a lot of public schools out there that have got, you know, people come, uh, graduating from public schools, uh, public high schools that are doing fantastically, getting great grades and getting great jobs as well. But that is more to do with their own drive and their own determination rather than that sort of push that they get from the school itself. Mm. Uh, so were you top of the class? Uh, in one subject, okay. for biology. Yep. That's a pretty high standard then, I'd imagine. Hmm. Um, and then, so then transitioning from year 12 to med school, uh, did you just slip straight in? Were your, like, did you have to do a UMAT and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so that was when the UMAT was, uh, had started coming okay. on board. And I think it had been around for four years or so. Uh, so I did the UMAT, uh, which is sort of an IQ-based test and uh, did relatively well in that. Um, got a few interviews around Australia. So I applied everywhere okay. in Australia yeah. and uh, got a few interviews around Australia as well. But, you know, it was, it was an interesting thing that I actually got into other states in medicine, but I actually didn't get in, in Adelaide. I got into dentistry in Adelaide. I didn't want to do dentistry yeah. and, um, you know, not laying, blaming, blaming anyone or, or laying any blame or anything like that. But I do remember my interview that I had over here for the entrance to medicine very, very clearly. And uh, there was this very old school doctor that was there and a, another non-medico person that was there taking the interview. And I still remember the fella that was there. He pretty much stared out the window the whole time, didn't ask me any questions. And at the end of it, he just said, oh, so Imran, you must be a pretty good cricketer then with that name. And I'm like, yeah, I'll play a bit of cricket. And he's like, all right, well, thank you for coming. See you later. So, you know, and that was completely different from the sort of interviews that I had in other states Hang as on. well. Can I just stop you for a moment? Because mm. I would have thought if he'd asked me that question that I've nailed the interview. But mm. you didn't go so well in that interview. No, no. I mean, whether or not that was just his style, but it seemed like he wasn't really interested at all wasn't paying yeah. attention mm. yeah and that that's what makes it quite difficult is that that interview determines whether or not you get into medicine or not and that's two people deciding your fate i suppose in terms of getting into medicine yeah. and what you do for the rest of your uh, career um so there's a lot of weight on just that one interview and those two people that are taking in some states there was three but uh with those two people that are taking that interview so then what happened? So um, you got the results back. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I've just, I've just got to ask sure. one more question before we mm -hmm. find out where you went. Um, the UMAT, mm -hmm. did you get coaching in, um, before doing that? I did one course. There was like a two-day course that I did just to find out exactly what is in that IQ-based test. Okay. The interview itself, I know that now these days there's a lot of courses out there and there's a lot of coaching available. Mm -hmm. At that time, there wasn't that much. Uh, so I was mainly coaching for that UMAT written part, which was the IQ test. So just to know what to expect when you go in there so you're not completely blindsided when you rock up mm -hmm. and there's, you know, uh, pages full of all these shapes and you're trying to find a shape within a whole bunch of lines and things like that. So when you're mentally prepared a little bit more, then it doesn't uh, shock you as much when you're in there. So it was, it was worthwhile. Yeah, I think so. Doing that coaching. Okay. Yeah. So Adelaide says no. Mm -hmm. You're devastated. Mm, and sort of. then <laughs> did you fly interstate for interviews as well? I did, yeah. Okay. What states did you go to? Uh, so I went to New South Wales, to Tasmania, um, Queensland, and uh, Western Australia as well. So pretty much everywhere. I know where this is going. Mm. You got accepted into Tasmania. Well, I, I, did, get a, <laughs> I did get accepted into Tassie. 
<laughs> but I decided not to go to Tassie. I actually decided to go to Perth. So I went to Perth and I did my med school there. Um, what, all six years? Correct. Yep. Was there a point during those six years where you could have transferred back to Adelaide? Um, yeah, there are opportunities to do that. It is difficult, but there are opportunities to do it. Um, for me, it was more so a bit of a, I think, a blessing in disguise. Hopefully my parents aren't going to be listening to this, but uh, a bit of a blessing in disguise. You know, I, I was always um, quite independent from a very young age. And uh, for me to move to Western Australia, it was kind of a bit of a separation from, you know, family and the pressures that you get being around family. So I actually ended up loving it in WA and I wanted to just stay there. I love (laughs) WA as well. It's beautiful. It's the boats and Mm -hmm. there's a real outside sort of vibe, isn't there, to that whole city? Definitely. It's very much a beach city. Mm. And the beaches are beautiful. Yeah. The lifestyle there is fantastic. And the fishing and the... Mm -hmm. You know, like it's the only place I think in Australia where you can go um, maybe half an hour north or south of Perth and throw a fishing line in and catch fish. And yeah. Whereas everywhere else in Australia is like fished out. Yeah. WA is the whole side of the country mm-hmm. and very few people live there. So yeah. you've got all the beautiful scenery and it's just unspoiled, unpopulated. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful place. So yeah. I'm interested to know how, I mean, so you flew over there for mm-hmm. an interview, which probably at the time you're thinking, wow, this is, you know, such a big investment in trying to get into a course. Mm -hmm. And yet in hindsight, it was probably well worth the money. Definitely. Okay. So when you got over there, did you have to stand on your own two feet financially and get a job straight away or did did mum and dad sort of help you out a bit? Yeah, not straight away. Mum and dad helped me out um, quite a lot, Uh, but it was for the basics or the necessities. and. Uh, I did end up working different jobs, various jobs over there. Yeah, while what, I was jobs, studying. what jobs? Okay, so I uh, did a bit of temping for a little while where I was doing a bit of labour work. Um, you what, know, on building sites? Building sites and... and That's uh, so on you. Yeah, so <laughs> I didn't last very long to tell you the truth <laughs> because it gets very hot in, in Perth and, and working out in that sort of sweltering heat is ridiculous. Okay, so, describe that job to it because I think this is hilarious. Oh, it, it was ridiculous. What I mean, there was doing? There was certain things like we were cleaning out flood-damaged carpets from houses. We were um, cleaning away debris from the uh, the mint in WA and taking away, you know, uh, lots of wood that they were breaking down a whole pergola and taking that away and cleaning up the rubbish. Uh, also, we helped build part of University of WA as well. And there's there's a huge hall there now, um, which had those dividers that come through in the middle that can block off those things. And each one of those doors weighs maybe something like 300K, you know, 300 kilograms, 250, 300 kilograms. And there was six of us carrying that door on our shoulders up the stairs. Uh, and, I, and I remember that very distinctly because it was something like a 40 degree day. And... Um, we were carrying this thing into the university where I study, where I'm going to be finishing medicine. I'm carrying this door through, <laughs> through 40 degree heat. And I just said to myself, nah, there's got, there's got to be a better way to make a little bit of money rather than doing this. So um, I quit not long after that and uh, ended up starting to work at a video store. So yeah, a video rental store. Like a blockbuster? Correct. Yeah. So I think it was Video Easy. Video Easy. Okay. Yeah. Oh no, sorry. Civic Video. Civic Video. Yeah. Before they all pretty much went you know, bankrupt. So, okay. um, yeah, working in a video store for a little while. I also worked in Nando's for a little while as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that Not was interesting. Cooking, no. <laughs> well, I started off at, at the back uh, on the grill and um, pretty See, soon became the manager of the uh, the store. And uh, I only went there because I used to eat there so often and I love Nando's. And I used to eat there so often that I was just got chatting with the manager that was there and I you know, asked her, 
are there any jobs going? And she gave me a job pretty much the next day. So, so that seems much more suitable to your character, like managing that business. Yeah. And, and did, so correct me if I'm wrong, but did you last there the longest out of all? Probably, sort of, yeah. Okay. Probably. Mm. That's good. Um, and did you just live, were you living in university accommodation or did you move out into your own apartment with some mates? Uh, so initially I was living in a small unit literally across the road from the university uh, but slowly moved out to a house which was a little bit further away um, but a slightly bigger house in uh, Scarborough. And were you on a push bike or what was your motor transport over there? I actually had a Sigma, Mitsubishi Sigma station wagon which me and my, <laughs> which, <laughs> which me and my brother bought for uh, $500. And then my brother proceeded to spend something like $2,000 putting an exhaust on it. And we found these two chrome wheels that we got them for very cheap because we couldn't get four of them. So we put those two on there, tinted out the windows and put a, a stereo system in there. And that was my, uh, that was my ride. So no air, con- no air conditioning, vinyl seats. Once again, in summer, you'll be driving to the beach and just getting stuck to the seats. And, you know, it was fun times, but slowly upgraded from there. Okay. Mm. Uh, now... How come your brother's in Perth? Oh, he just came. No, the car was here and I took this car to Perth. Oh, by yourself. You drove it across the Nullarbor Plain. Put it on a truck. I wasn't going to trust that on the Nullarbor Plain. <laughs> Not on the Nullarbor Plain. We drove back. Me and a few of my mates drove back through the Nullarbor Plain when I was leaving Perth. But yeah, no, I was going to drive that car. No, no, no. Okay. Um, right. Did you sail through med school? Uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, for the first few years I... Um, I guess I spent more time enjoying my university days rather than, you know, putting all my effort into studies. But in my clinical years, I really knuckled down and, and started doing some proper study for the last three years. Um, were you playing sport at any time during this? Uh, not formally. Totally focused on study. So not totally. And, but and, yeah. a bit, and a bit of partying. <laughs> and a bit of partying, correct, yeah. And that's when I started getting into the music and, you know, started uh, doing a bit of music on the side and things like that. So, yeah, there was a few little things going on. And, and okay, so six years, you've finished. Sounds like you're probably not looking forward to finishing because you're having such good a time there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then did you do – then what did you do? So I imagine during the sixth year you were at a hospital somewhere. Correct, yep. In Perth? Mm-hmm. Yes. What's the name of the hospital? Uh, so you move around to different places and um, different hospitals as well, but uh, St. Charles Garden Hospital was where I did majority of my sort of rotations that we do there. And how did you find that? Was that what you expected? You loved it? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, when you're doing your clinical years, it's it's all about sort of surviving, I think, um, and not sort of sticking out too much or not doing the wrong thing because you, you still don't have – a great deal of knowledge and you're trying to learn on the job. Uh, you know, at, at points you were pretty much a glorified uh, photocopier really or a note taker, <laughs> so a scribe really, and um, just dictating what the bosses were telling you. So there was there was this sort of, you know, I've got a bit of knowledge but I still have a lot to learn and I'm not sure if I'm ready to get started but I want to get started and, you know, there was all these sort of conflicting emotions. So. I was really looking forward to finishing the study and actually getting started in work and getting paid for the for the hours that we were doing. Okay, so you finished your sixth year at the hospital mm-hmm. in Perth and then what was the next step? So <clears throat> I decided to actually come back to Adelaide for my Why? internship year. You know, the family bonds are strong. and um, But you, it sounds like you just needed some space away from the family and then I actually realised that 
I, I love being part of this family unit. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, that was part of it. I wanted to come back and spend a bit of time with my family and uh, see what they're up to and, and see how I went in Adelaide. Uh, so I come, I came back for my internship year, but obviously it didn't last very long because I stayed here for a year and then I took off again <laughs> and I left from Adelaide. So we had some, we had a death in the family oh, okay. and um, someone very close to me and it sort of got me to reevaluate what was important in life. And I just wanted to sort of take some time away from the whole nine to five, and it's not really nine to five in medicine, but you know, the sort of regular job and try to figure out what is important to me in life. So I actually started locoming in New Zealand. So yeah, yeah, so I left from Adelaide and I went to New Zealand. Uh, I worked in a small town called Gisborne, which is the very <laughs> small little town in, in the Northern Island of New Zealand. And I uh, did a bit of emergency work over there and, um, you know, spent a few months, bought myself a little motorcycle and just hung around there for a little while, uh, met a few friends there and then decided, you know, I've saved up enough money. Locoming pays very, very well, mm, extremely mm. well. And uh, they paid for my accommodation and, you know, a few other little perks there as well. So I saved up enough to just take a very extended vacation, um, which ended up being almost three years. Three-year vacation? Pretty much, yeah. Hold on a moment. When yeah. you went over to New Zealand, did you know anyone over there? No. You just saw an ad online or in the paper or something and then mm-hmm. applied for a job. And I, I presume these qualifications are directly transferable between New Zealand and Australia. Yes. There wasn't a bridging course that you had to do or anything. No bridging course. No, I had to get the paperwork and all the insurance side of things sorted, but it's quite easy to go work in New Zealand as a Australian doctor. So you went over there and then um, stayed there for as long as it took to save up enough to do this? Hmm, this to have this hiatus away from yeah, medicine. so tell us about that. Three years. Yeah, so almost three years. Uh, so I spent a few more months in New Zealand and I travelled around through New Zealand and spent a bit of time seeing that place. And I absolutely love New Zealand. It's such a beautiful place and the people there are absolutely wonderful. Uh, and uh, my best mate who was going to South America to go travel in South America, he'd, he'd already been in Europe and uh, he was travelling through throughout the world and he was ending up in, in South America. So I decided to join him down there. Um, softly, <laughs> softly down to South America. Uh, met him up, I think it was in Argentina, no, Bolivia, uh, from memory. Bolivia or Peru? It's, it's, a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a mashup now, but end, ended up in South Australia, met up with him, and we just travelled around South America for a few months. Um, then I went to... Motorbikes South- or...? No, just backpacking. Backpacking. And, yeah, backpacking primarily. Uh, we rented a car maybe a couple of days of the whole time we were there, but... Uh, primarily just backpacking buses and trains and things like hitchhiking? that. Hitchhiking? No hitchhiking, no. It, was it safe over there then? I mean, it depends what you mean by safe. It, it is Ooh. safe enough and there were certain areas that we went to which were um, pretty rough and we got into a couple of situations that were a bit questionable as well because people are out there trying to take advantage of foreigners, obviously, and we weren't staying in the nicest areas or mm. in, in the nicest places. So we did come across some, I guess you could call them unsavory characters, And uh, but it was just part of the trip and it was part of the, part of the experience. And um, I think we learnt a lot more from that. To see how people are living in those countries as well really gives you an appreciation for how good we have it here in Australia. What was your friend's occupation? So he's he's my producer from our band as well. Oh, so he's okay. the fellow that makes all the all the music. 
And, um, you know, he's done odd jobs here and there, but he's very much a hippie at heart and um, he focuses mainly on his music. Wow. So that would have, I find that that would have been a hard person to travel with because you're on different budgets. You know, you've come off the back of mm-hmm. locuming work where you're a highly paid professional mm-hmm. and he's sort of just picking up jobs as a, you know, putting money together as mm-hmm. as part of his musical career. Mm. But but wasn't an issue? No, because whatever I have is his, whatever he has mm. is mine. We yeah. sort of just worked together and, and his sister was there uh, as well. So we all sort of banded together and if I had a bit of extra money... You know, so be it. Um, that wasn't really a, a important thing for me to be yeah. staying in the nicest places. I mean, I still did splurge a few nights here and there, uh, but we just went on a budget. And that's why I could last for as long as I did because I was working more towards his budget rather than him working towards mine. Yeah, I get that totally. Mm. Um, so how long were you over there in South America? I think it was about all together. It was about four months uh, okay. Four or five months in South America. We travelled all through South America, and then I took off and uh, went to Pakistan again for uh, my cousin's wedding. Uh, stayed there for a little while longer. Went a bit through Southeast Asia, uh, and then came back to Australia and spent a bit of time over here just doing a bit of music. Um, ended up in Melbourne actually when I came back. Yeah, so he he had moved back to Melbourne. And I'd come back to Adelaide for a little while. He'd settled in Melbourne and was doing his music thing. And I just went, nah, stuff it. So I went to Melbourne and uh, worked on our music for a bit longer. So a year and a half, uh, just worked on music. Uh, Were you thinking that that may be a career for you? Or did you know you'd always come back to medicine? I mean, a year and a half is a long long time time to spend on music. That's a year and a half out of this three years we're talking about. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're writing songs, and yeah, writing writing songs, writing lyrics. Uh, so there was prom- there was pretty much three of us. Uh, he did all the music, and he's an amazing producer. The sort of music that he makes is just incredible. Uh, we had another fellow who was a vocalist who did all the uh, the singing, and um, I did the the emceeing or the rapping, as you can call it. Oh, and wow. uh, so there was three of us, and we got a band together to promote the album that we've made and started you know, playing at different pubs and bars and a couple of little festivals and things like that. So, um, you know, I was thinking that this is something that I really want to take seriously. And I think the problem with me is that if I set a goal for myself, no matter if it's going well or poorly, I feel as I have to complete that goal. Otherwise, my brain won't, won't let me rest. So my goal at that time was that um, I wanted to make an album. And until I'd completed that album, I was not allow, well, not allowing myself to get back into medicine. So I think that once I'd finished the album, I decided that, look, at least I've done that. We can still, you know, we don't have to spend every single day, all day working on music and things. It's just more about promoting the album. Uh, I slowly started getting back into medicine because it was hard to be broke. You know? <laughs> but I think financially... It would have been a struggle, but the lifestyle of being in a band is, um, it, you know, there's it's quite attractive, isn't it? It is. Where you're, you're the life of the party, you're getting free drinks, everyone wants to be your friend. You, you know, it opens up a lot of doors. It does. And I'm not sure if it's exactly like that. There was a, there was a little bit of that, but it was more so, you know, medicine is a very, very stressful job. Mm-hmm. And... Um, to be doing that day in and day out, it does really take a toll on you. 
and to not have that stress and not have to really worry about what you were doing day to day and you could just live and you could just experience life as it came to you. I think that was one of the most uh, important aspects for me was to not have really many cares in the world and just try to figure out, you know, my place in the world, who I am as a person and what I really want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I think that that break was necessary for me to realize the importance of being a doctor. Because before that, I, you know, it was one of those things that I was just doing because I thought that was the right thing or the good thing or the, the safe thing to do. Uh, but it was taking that time away that I actually realized that uh, being a doctor is a very important role uh, I guess in society or, or in the world or even in my life. So that really gave me the motivation to get back into it and actually get back into it properly rather than just, you know, going through the motions. Yeah, I, I think what part I sort of take away from that is that it really was an opportunity for you to pr- appreciate, you know, like um, the true value of money. Mm. And it was a bit like a, a valley that you went through and you, you for me it seems like always being a doctor you, you always truly appreciate how good it's going compared to what it was like with not having very much money as a muso absolutely you know and if you would have gone straight into being a, med- a medico straight away you may not have appreciated the privileged life that it can offer you Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so then you you decided that you'd get back into medicine. Um, how did you make that transition back? So um, there was a two three week uh, rotation that I had to try to find for myself to work under a consultant in the hospital to prove that I still had knowledge. Um, I was going to be safe and. Uh, I can actually effectively and efficiently do my job. So that was an unpaid sort of uh, a few weeks for them to assess me and get my registration back to allow me to practice. And uh, I thought, you know, what's the most important thing in medicine is really those those critical moments when someone is extremely, extremely unwell and you have to make split-second decisions to, to make sure that, um, you know, Nothing bad happens. They don't die. They get don't get unmore, uh, sorry, more unwell. So I decided to do emergency medicine because I thought that that would be the way to get my you know my, my important skills back up to scratch. So I started working in a hospital in uh, in Melbourne as a junior doctor as an RMO over there in emergency medicine and worked there for two two and a half years. Um, and that was quite interesting. I mean, going from that to slowly building uh, my knowledge and and my responsibilities up to a point where I was in charge of the emergency department overnight um, and had other junior doctors under me. So really the buck stopped with me pretty much. I mean, you're not really going to call a consultant in the middle of the night unless you really, really have to. You would have seen some horrendous cases. We saw some quite interesting things, yeah. A lot of car Um, accidents. Yeah. Gunshot wounds, um, drug overdoses, all that sort yep. of stuff I'm imagining. Yeah, drug overdoses are quite common. Um, there was quite a few stabbings and assaults, um, a couple of gunshot wounds, um, and, yeah, lots of car accidents. And, and you see all sorts of, you know, absolutely crazy things which you don't really think about until everything's happened and, you know, the patient's stabilised and gone off to theatre or whatever. And and then you look back and go, wow, that was 
that was crazy. Um, so it was interesting. And I was working in, in the Northern Hospital, which is surrounded by areas where I guess it's more lower socioeconomic uh, people around there as well. So it was either that there was a lot of violence over there, so you got to, you know, you, you had a lot of these sort of cases coming through, uh, or you had people that just really didn't go to the doctor and they waited until they were literally a death's door mm. and then they will come into the emergency department to be seen so you that was a great hospital to work in just for the sort of things that i saw the acuity the the skills that i gained uh, the knowledge that i gained from there it was fantastic did you get to a point where um it became too stressful or like what why did why was it time to leave you just realized that you'd done your, your share of time there and giving back to the community. There's a, there's a big element of that working in hospitals, isn't there? Mm, there is. Um, I think it's just itchy feet for me. Mm-hmm. I've always been someone that's that's looking for the next thing. And um, I think that at that point I was seeing the sort of stress that the consultants were under, um, the sort of hours they would have to work. And uh, it is a very stressful job. I mean, every patient that's coming through is very, very unwell. Uh, so a lot of focus is required, a lot of overtime, um, and I just really didn't want to be doing shift work for the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, so that was pretty much the main thing that sort of um, steered me away from emergency medicine. You know, you're doing uh, nights and you're working all night uh, and you're doing random days and you'll be working, you'll finish at you know, 12 o'clock at night, go home, sleep for a few hours and come back first thing in the morning to start working again. So that wasn't really the lifestyle that I wanted for myself. Mm. Um, so that's why I'm, I took off again and went locoming around Australia for another year <laughs> and oh, working in different emergency. Me? Yeah. <laughs> so from Melbourne to... Uh, so I travelled all around Australia and I was doing, you know, little stints here and there in emergency departments through New South Wales and Queensland and Victoria, uh, mainly in country areas. And um, that was a very interesting experience as well, just, you know, just working different places, uh, meeting new people. Um, before I decided that... Um, Maybe locoming is a hard gig as well, you know, living out of a suitcase, traveling from one place to the next. So I thought, you know, that, that whole thing about having to finish something is, is important. So I thought, look, general practice fits my bill. It, it's more of a nine to five job. It's not uh, very stressful in terms of the acuity of patients that's coming through or the very sick patients coming through. I mean, you still get that. Um, but it was more suited to my lifestyle because I have so many interests outside of medicine that I wanted to have time to do those. So that's why I went into general practice and decided to come back here because, you know, all my brother well, my brother and my sisters were having kids and they didn't recognize me when I came back to visit and, you know, things like that. So I felt that, that tug from the family again to be part of the family. So decided to come back here and uh, do my training for general practice. Which is quite difficult, isn't it? Hmm. It is. It is. Uh, it's a fairly hard training program. I think a lot of people have got um, some misconceptions about the fact that GP is an easy gig or the exams are quite easy, but mm. the exams are quite difficult. Incredibly and difficult. Like you think that if you got through medicine, mm-hmm. that you just breeze through these GP exams. But I know quite a few people have really struggled and had to go back and repeat components of them. True. I think that the the year before I sat my exams, the pass rate was something like 50%. I can't remember the exact numbers, but almost half the people that sat the exams failed and had to repeat it again. Which which is, I think that's ridiculous because you think you've had to be super smart to get into medicine. You've got to pass six years of medicine. You've got to do your, you know, 
a bit of work experience and then you go in and you do this and then still one in two people fail? Are you kidding me? Hmm. Uh, there, there has been an issue in the past with general practice where they haven't had a formal training program. Uh, they haven't had formal exams. And a lot of people were concerned that the GPs that were coming out weren't really up to scratch. And the more I work in this field, the more I do see that as well, that there are some GPs out there that just really don't really have that knowledge base that they probably should because it's such a wide variety of presentations that you get. So I think that this exam is a very important thing to have. And I think having a tough exam is is very important also to have the best quality GPs that you can have out there um, because it takes the stress off you know a lot of the other uh, you know, I guess like the hospitals and, and other specialist clinics and things like that where you, if you've got GPs that are better trained with better knowledge uh, they can manage a lot of stuff in the community and they don't actually have to go to hospital or go to a specialist so it takes a little bit of the load off that, system, that part of the system as well um, so I agree with that I mean how hard it is I guess that's a hard, hard thing for me to say, and I think that's a hard thing for people to to structure to have it hard enough, but not so hard that you know half the people don't get in. So things are changing. They're still trying to reach uh, equilibrium in terms of these exams, and I think over the last year or so, it has become a little bit easier. Um, and I think that it's more so because they're getting a bit more clarity in terms of how to structure the exam, the questions that they ask, and and the sort of answers that they're looking for. Okay. So you passed the exams. Where are you working now? So I'm sort of uh, changing jobs at the moment. So I was working in Mount Barker uh, a few days a week and a couple of days a week in uh, Newport, Adelaide. And uh, I've finished all my hours or finished all all my uh, time at Mount Barker and I'm actually moving to Belair now. So uh, I'm just starting up at Belair and um, learning a little bit more about uh, nutrition and environmental health as well. So trying to incorporate, uh, you know, dietary modifications and, and lifestyle modifications and vitamins and minerals to supplement what we already do in general practice. It's interesting because uh, I would have thought that, you know, that, that there's this whole naturopath movement, but mm. they, that I've always thought that that's at an opposite end of the spectrum to the GPs. Whereas it, that's traditionally, sort of, yeah, traditionally. But I think that... Personally, I'm not. I'm not sure whether or not many other doctors would agree, but you know, I haven't really spoken to enough of them about this. But I think that the public is demanding more of an amalgamation of the two, and you know, a lot of people that I speak to, they complain about going into GP uh, general practices, and the doctor doesn't seem to listen, or they don't really spend very much time with them. And I think that a lot of it's not really the faults of the the GP. But they don't really go through the nutrition side uh, so far as I know and they don't really have the time to do that because it does require a lot of time to go in through all these uh, other aspects of health. So GPs are probably there to to treat the disease um, rather than, I guess, we all promote lifestyle changes and, you know, have a good diet and exercise and try to prevent the disease, disease, the disease prevention. But there is very little formal training of nutrition and, and things like that in med school. So this is an extra sort of fellowship or degree that I'm doing to learn about this. I'm about to head to, to Melbourne to do the primary part of it. Um, and I'll have some, you know, tests and online tests and things to complete to, to get that fellowship as well. Um, but for me, it's more so about I want to be able to treat people or 
or improve their health with everything that I can rather than just medications or um, just you know natural therapies there needs to be a combination of both and, and you know it's not one of those things that if someone comes in with a heart attack that I'm going to prescribe them some vitamins and minerals you know <laughs> you, you do your proper general practice uh, but is there anything else that you can do to help these people with chronic disease so for someone like me who's terribly unhealthy um, what would you say from what you're learning mm. are a few things and also for the listeners uh, that we could do that would dramatically increase our health healthiness. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is is there anything we can do? Like, what I'm getting at is, say I've been diagnosed with cancer, heaven forbid, but mm-hmm. you, you see everyone on the carrot juice straight away and chart cartilages and all that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. is there stuff that I can introduce into my diet without without making major changes, which would make me much healthier? Sure. Um, I think that's a hard question because it has to be tailored to you as an mm. individual, and I think that a general sort of uh, a general comment it wouldn't really do it do it okay. justice. Well, but you're the, still on coffee, I see. Yes, <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> coffee in moderation is okay. Shouldn't you be on herbal tea? Uh, herbal tea is better, mm. and I think that um, you know there are a couple of doctors that I work with that do deal with cancer patients as well. And one of the things that they do ask them to do is to cut back on all the, uh, I guess, the artificial things that they'll be putting into their body and going more into green tea and and to really improve their diet to a point where it can be as optimal as it can be to give their body, you know, its optimal optimal performance to be able to help fight these cancers off while they're getting their regular chemotherapy, radiotherapy, um, surgery, things like that. A lot of it's also aimed to minimise the side effects of things like chemotherapy, Um, you know, things of that nature. So it's not really taking away from what we already do in general practice. It's more so trying to help to combat some of the side effects and the problems that come from our treatment. Um, But in general, in terms of diet, it, it really is that we can see all around us that all of us, you know, drink more alcohol, not all of us, a lot of us drink more alcohol, we have a lot more artificial sort of preservatives and and, um, things in our food that we just go for the quick thing because we're short of time. And um, we stress a lot more than than I guess we used to. Um, We work a lot harder, we work longer hours, uh, we don't drink enough water, things things like that. So basic, basic sort of uh, things that we can do is to have more natural foods and, and try to avoid sugar in our diet um, you know have lots of water exercise and all the sort of stuff that most GPS would tell their patients as well uh, but it is a very generalized thing that we tell our patients rather than specifically asking them what do you have for breakfast what do you have for lunch what do you have for dinner you know how many hours are you exercise what kind of exercises do you do so on and so forth and and tailoring the the management plan for that individual how they can improve their health so what I my takeaway from that is that if if I drink more water and give mm-hmm. up sugar, mm-hmm. uh, I'll be a healthier person. It can't hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You'll definitely give, be healthier. Yeah. So I've given up milk mm-hmm. and I find that that's, I'm on soy milk now in my coffees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've found that that's actually really good. Yes. Uh, and to the point where it's sweeter than milk mm-hmm. and I don't actually have to have sugar in my coffee. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and I feel like a bit um, of a yuppie when I'm at a <laughs> restaurant and I say, I'll have a cappuccino with soy and people sort of look at you sideways. But it's actually really good. 
Yeah. And I don't think that I've compromised on, on um, anything really in terms of flavour. Sure. Half the time you wouldn't even know the difference. Well, I mean, I can definitely taste the difference between normal milk and soy, but I think a lot of people have a problem with dairy. Mm. And um, I think they, they might not even realise that they've got issues with dairy because they might get a bit of bloating here and there or they might get a little bit of a tummy upset, feel a bit sluggish and things like that. Um, but it might just be something like cutting out dairy completely from your diet that makes a big, big, big difference in your sense of well-being. Uh, so I know that personally I have a bit of issue with dairy. It makes me a bit, bit bloated and things like that. So I've just gone to black coffee now. And um, if I do have to have something in it, I have lactose-free milk or something like that. And it hasn't really made a change. I think it's, it's prioritizing what's important to you. Is it important that you have the absolute tastiest thing that you can put into your body? Or is it more important that you may sacrifice some of that taste uh, for you know, feeling better? and and um, being healthier mm. um what about this is the last question i want to drill sure. on with yeah, you yeah, about, yeah, um, with, but what about vitamins i mean i've been i've had pneumonia and a few things like that and so my mum has given me all these vitamins and it, mm-hmm. there's so many out there in the kitchen i can hardly keep up with them but yeah. um and i was really good at it for about four weeks but do you believe that having vitamins in the morning mm-hmm. is going to make you a healthier person it depends um the thing is that what I'm learning at the moment, I've only been doing this for a few days, a handful of days. So mm. I'm really not the person that can give you proper advice on this. But what we try to do is have evidence-based, um, I guess, uh, knowledge about these things as well. Because there's a lot of vitamins and minerals that are, in my opinion, just nonsense, right? So there's a big marketing push behind a lot of these vitamins and minerals that absolutely do nothing for you. And in some cases can actually harm you. Uh, but certain things that you can take that that have that has been shown in in research and in studies to actually help boost your immune system a little bit is things like you know simple things like vitamin C, uh, zinc can actually help boost your immune system as well to help you fight off viruses or if you do get viruses you don't get them for as long um, they're not as severe you know things like that so there is evidence behind some of this stuff uh, and that's the trick is to well, I guess not the trick but that is the important thing is to find out what out of all of these things does have evidence behind it to support me telling my patients about this? Because I'm not just going to tell them because that's a sort of old wives tale or that's what other people think is the, the right thing to do. There, there always has to be evidence behind it for us to recommend these things. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, last time we spoke, which was uh, about a year ago, you were talking about setting up a new GP clinic. Is that mm-hmm. still on the cards? I was I was thinking about it, um, but at the moment, uh, you know, my wife and I we have a lot of ideas in our head, and it all comes down to the holy grail really is of a passive income. You know, it's one of those things that I don't really want to be working until I'm seventy years old and and trying to save for my retirement. But you get to your retirement and your body is not in that state to really enjoy that money. So. Mm. It's uh, the aim at the moment is to try to get some sort of passive income. And that's what we're going through at the moment is coming up with ideas of how we may do that, looking at different business models and uh, different things we can do, going from things like tourist accommodation um, to nursing homes to other general practices, you know, things like that. We've looked into a lot of things and we're still yet to really get down to the crux of what we are actually going to just go for. Because if we're going to go for it, we have to go for it 100%. And um, 
at the moment, I think that that's what we're trying to figure out. I think me and you and I had a bit of a discussion about this as well in terms mm. of where we were going. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll let you know as things develop as well. Mm. I don't really want to be saying this is what we're doing because in, in six months' time we would have crunched the numbers and looked at all the sites and things like that and decided maybe that's not actually a feasible option. So we'll go to the next thing. Because I find this really interesting because I, you know, I think there's a big entrepreneurial component of you that, you know, it just keeps bubbling away. Um, and, and, you know, you know um, like you're 10 years younger than me and I can see a lot of that was part of my life at that stage. Um, what happened for me was that I tried a lot of different businesses and all of them failed and I always went running back to accounting. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that, um, that well, none of them were big. They were always little, but they always distracted me from my accounting. So now what I'm doing is I'm trying to get better and better at my accounting and every bit of entrepreneurial um, drive that I've got is being pushed into running my accounting business and also into property. Mm-hmm. And I found that property was perfect for me because, and I originally only did it because I didn't have enough accounting customers, but now it's getting to the point where that little side hustle of my property is going so well that it's got a life of its own and it's got its own momentum, but it also enables me to be entrepreneurial. And and by that I mean it's not like I go and get a buyer's agent to go and buy a property for me. I'll do letter drops and I'll get creative and then I'll negotiate directly with the owner and you know try to do and I'll be lying awake at night thinking now this is the property I need. There's nothing on the market. How do I um, find that property before everyone else does? So I'm coming up with all these creative ideas. So I think that it's good to do what you're – I mean I, I'm appointing myself as your financial mentor here, and I probably don't need to be. But I, but I think that uh, you know, medicine is just going to be so incredibly good to you over the years. That uh, and all these little things about passive income for me, it seems like well, you get your passive income out of property if you do that well enough. And investing in bricks and mortar, you really can't go wrong, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking, or I hope that at some point Imran goes into property. And gets really good at it and makes a killing on that as well as becoming a really good doctor as well. Yeah, you know, so, but I don't know whether it'll end up like that. And hey, who knows? Um, you might develop this passive income stream that's so good uh, in all these little things that you're talking about that that might mean that you don't have to work as a doctor. Who knows? But mm. for me, I never found that. I always went running back to accounting. Sure. No, I would never, I don't think I'd ever give up working as a doctor. Mm. I think that I would always have to do it for myself anyway, even if it is, you know, three days a week, two, three days a week. Uh, and as you know, we've already been doing a bit of property here and there mm. and, and have done okay at it as well. Uh, I agree with you. I think bricks and water is definitely a safe way to go. And there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, there's a bubble and there's a crash coming and all that sort of stuff. And and um, I think that my wife puts it the best that it's not really a, a bubble that's going to burst. It's more of a correction mm. along the upward trend that we've got with real estate. Uh, and I think in Australia, we're very lucky that we haven't really faced a lot of these issues that, that other, uh, I guess, uh, markets in other countries have in terms of real estate. So I agree with you. I think it's a fantastic place to be able to invest some money. Um, but with the medicine, the medicine gives me the finances to be able to do these mm-hmm. other things. And I think that's very important. Uh, the other thing we've got in common is 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're renovating your house at the moment, aren't you? Yes. Can well, you we're renovating us? one house, which you've just sold. Which you were living in? No. So um, I've been renovating a house that we're living in at the okay. moment. And then we, were, we also had a investment property that I was renovating pretty solidly for uh, you know five weeks, six weeks. And then we ended up selling that. That was prior to sell. But I'm renovating our house uh, up here in the hills as well. Okay. So can you tell us about like what would a doctor know about renovating a house? <laughs> You know, because that's bizarre. Like someone interviewed me for a podcast recently and, and the headline was an accountant with a builder's license. You know, how many accounts? Do you? Anyway, so tell us uh, more. I imagine that the work that you're doing is a little bit more complicated than just a coat of paint somewhere. Yeah, so a little bit of work. I, you know, I was pretty uh, proud of the bathroom that uh, my friend and I did. So this house that we bought is that classic worst house on the best street. So we Love got it. it something like, you know, 100 or 150,000 under market value mm. because there was a lot of work to be done. And we're surrounded by million dollar houses around there. So the work that needed to be done was pretty much everything except the brick walls on the outside. The roof needs to be done, the the um, the back decking, the garage, all that sort of stuff. So the big things I will not be tackling myself because I think that's a safety element um, and that really needs to be done professionally in to a house of that sort of caliber in that area as well. But the toilet and bathroom that we did, it was pretty much me and my mate who's who's a plumber and we got together and got some jackhammers and started tearing things apart, tearing down walls, re-putting walls up, doing more piping, you know, a uh, bit of screeding. And um, we hired uh, a couple of people to do the finishing touches, like do the tiling so that looked proper, install a shower screen um, and, uh, and new windows. But besides that, me and my mate did really everything else. So you're putting up stud walls yep. and doing jip rocking? Yeah, putting up uh, studs and, you know, uh, putting the jip rocking, putting these little alcoves, these recesses into the walls as well and, um, you know, doing a bit of cement work and, and pipe work and things like that. YouTube is a great resource. You, you, can find, you can find anything you want on the internet and they will go through it step by step in terms of what you need to do and how you need to do it. Uh, I remember Rosalind Kogan saying that, Every training course these days is a complete waste of money because everything you can possibly learn is on YouTube. Wow. Even to the extent of open heart surgery. Now, I'm not saying that you suggest that. Of but course, there is, yeah. <laughs> he said, not my words, he said there is a YouTube video on how to perform open heart surgery. I wouldn't be so surprised. I, I find that as well. Like um, something blew up in my washing machine. I'd only had it 12 months, so I Googled it. And there was a YouTube video on how to repair this seal that was leaking. Mm-hmm. And I did it all myself and it was incredible, but it was the difference between throwing that washing machine out and buying a new one yep. or fixing the old one, which was a minor job in the end. But yeah. it took me about three or four hours longer. But that's my time, you know, and on a Friday night or not a Friday night, but a Tuesday, Wednesday night um, when there's nothing else happening at home. Mm-hmm. It's quite nice to do these sorts of things, you know, get it yourself is. set up in there and, and work away. But So the doctor and the plumber, <laughs> bizarre conversation. <laughs> Yeah. are watching YouTube videos and going crazy with home renovations. Yeah, pretty but, much sums it up. But I bet, I mm-hmm. bet that your result with the renovations that you've done is unbelievable. It looks very nice. And are people coming to your house and saying, wow, who did this? This looks 10 times better than 
when we were here last time. <laughs> to a certain extent, yeah. We, we have had a few people over, uh, over at the house. I haven't really had many people at the house yet because of the back decking is just not safe and things like that. But uh, the people that have come through and have seen the difference between what the bathroom looked like to what it is right now, it's absolute chalk and cheese. I mean... And, and this is... So you bought the property at X. It's now probably worth X, you know, Y, which is a lot higher number, less mm-hmm. what you've spent on it. So that gain for mm-hmm. me as an accountant mm-hmm. is tax-free because it's your principal place of residence. Yes. Hopefully we're talking about your principal place of residence, it not is. your rental yep. property. But it's just so hard to make that money through saving it from through your business, isn't it? But 100%. When, yeah. when you go to sell that property and you pay, you know, and you're paying off your loan at the moment as well with P&I, I'd imagine, as all the loans are moving that way, but you have this lump sum of cash when you sell it, which is yours, and you don't have to pay anything to the government. I mean, that's just gold, Correct. isn't it? Absolutely, and so that's what I love about real estate. Even for doctors who are out there earning good money, there's still great money to be made by mm-hmm. going and buying some tools, doing the renovations yourself, mm-hmm. getting in a mate who's a tradie. Who, I mean, the bathroom is something that a lot of people wouldn't even touch. I never touch it because I'm always worried about leaks in pipes and all that but if you've got this guy on board with you exactly and, and not everyone has a, a tradie mate you know to actually help them with this and if i didn't have a mate who was a plumber i don't think i would have been able to tackle the bathroom because it is a fairly intensive job to do so without giving too much away how like what's in it for him um you can help him in ways other ways like it's- i guess i mean I'm not sure. I mean, I, the thing is, I don't get him to do it for free. Right? Yeah, I know, but, but and I do pay him for the okay. time oh, that he good, that good, he helps good, me good, with. Good. I'm not the type. But it'd be that, at mates' rates, wouldn't it? It is mates' rates. Yeah, yeah. And and, and he has a good time. Imagine does. you're having a few drinks or mm-hmm. a bit of music going when you're doing this stuff. Yeah. Just hanging out, really, and, yeah. and demolishing things. I mean, what better way is there to spend your Saturday than getting a jackhammer to a bathroom? I'm, I'm worried about seeing you on the end of a jackhammer. I must say. <laughs> we managed. We managed. No one got seriously hurt. Uh, but, yeah, we managed to do it. So it's more so, you know, look, he's a mate and um, we like to hang out and he gets a little bit of extra cash out of it as well. I like get a bathroom out of it. And like you said, you know, it, it all adds to the value of the house. And the classic example was the house that we just sold. And uh, we were going to sell it for X amount. Mm. And I spent, you know, a month on it. And that was while I was working full-time as well, coming home at the end of the day and going straight to the to the uh, investment property and working there. And spending that one month and maybe about $10,000 actually ended up getting an extra thirty dollars to $35,000 at the end when we actually went to selling the house. So for me, you know, for working a little bit extra a month and spending $10,000 to get an extra thirty, dollars that's not including the money that we spent put into the house, extra thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars that's that's I think brilliant. And I bet too that it was presented so well it's so you know it, it's one thing to get that money but sometimes you know property won't move on the market even though it's worth that you, you probably got it to a point where it was just looking absolutely um, amazing. Mm. I, I find that when I get a property and I've renovated it and I put it onto market it's and when I'm happy with it and I turn around and I look at it and I think I don't want to sell this anymore because it's so good. Did you have that moment? A, a little bit, yeah. a little bit. But, but that's uh, part of the, the journey that you're on. It is, it is. Um, and you're very ambitious to the point where I think that um, it, it needs to be sort of contained a little bit. Um, why are you so ambitious? Oh, um, what, what is it you want to buy? Like is it, is it a personal thing that you want to achieve? Um, like what drives you? Yeah, I'm not 
really sure. I think it's just my brain just never shuts up. It's uh, always coming up with ideas, always always things that, that can be done. But I guess my main aim is to be able to work the number of hours that I want to work for the sheer enjoyment of it mm. and not have to be working and forcing myself out of bed in the morning to have to go to work just because I've got bills to pay or because um, you know I've got something that's due it should be more about the enjoyment of it rather than because you're forced to so for me it's a really it's about the passive income Mm. and um, you know I've, I've been through that phase of where I've been all about look mate it doesn't matter it's not important I'm happy just to live in a one bedroom shack with a bit of food in my belly and I think that really that's a great great notion to have and if you can do that then that is fantastic but you still need money to be able to put food in your belly and to pay for that one bedroom shack and things like that so money is always going to be important and unfortunately you know fortunately unfortunately that is the currency of how we deal with everything in the world so for me the the motivation comes from that end goal of being able to be I guess relaxing on the beach somewhere and not worrying about my next bill that I have to pay or the next job that I have to go and do or the next number of hours I have to spend inside a, uh, a room consulting so I think that's what drives me but as with everyone the more that you get the more that you want so I'm very careful not to fall back into that is that how much is enough Mm. And I'm not sure if I've got the answer for that just yet, but I'm definitely working towards it. Um, are you planning on changing the world? <laughs> no, no, because no, I think there's well, an element there that, that suggests that because you want to be, I mean, I, I know that you need the money there, but it's almost mm. like you're freeing yourself up for two or three days a week to do something. And is that, because is, 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 is that what you're thinking? Yeah, look, there's always been that drive there for me. Um. I guess something that we haven't really touched on is that I'm very interested in politics and uh, especially foreign politics and and world politics. For me, the reason why I actually got into the music in the first place and and writing and um, performing and things like that was from a political standpoint. And it was all about, you know, talking with my mates about, look, this is not right in the world or there is an injustice in, in this place or this is happening uh, uh, in Australia or overseas. What can I as a person do? And after years and years, and we're still trying to figure it out, but after years of racking um, our brains, my brain, it came to the fact that really it sounds cliche, but knowledge is power. And the only way to change a lot of these injustices in the world is with people power. If you've got enough people on board that are fighting or pushing for the same thing, then people will have to listen. So the music did definitely come from that sort of standpoint, was about trying to change the world. But it's very hard for one person to do that. Mm. And all I see right now is that one good way of trying to get a message out there, because if you just preach people switch off instantly almost. Uh, but if you can put it into an enjoyable format like music, for example, then you can try to reach more people or other like-minded people or even swing one person that may have not thought about these things before to actually caring is is an important thing. So I guess there is a part of that, changing the world. It, it sort of sounds a bit cliche, but yeah. uh, there is a little bit of that, yeah. Uh, now, final question, Um for this podcast, I want to talk about cars with you. Yes, because um, this is 
close to your heart and my it is, heart. Yes. Um, you were driving around when we first met uh, an older type car, I think, and you were actually, I think it was a Nissan or something, and you were thinking of doing some renovations and modifications to it, adding a turbo to it, mm-hmm. something like that. And I said, "What's that going to cost?" And you said, <laughs> "A big number, like ten thousand dollars." And I said, "Correct." Yep. And all of a sudden, the smile went from my face, and I and I turned around and I said, "No, no, please don't do that. That's not going to be a good idea." <laughs> that was the accountant coming out. It, it was. And then I said, "What sort of car would you like?" And then we talked about. I think it was a Subaru WRX, mm-hmm. wasn't it? We were possibly looking at it for my missus. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then did you end up buying that new car? We did, but. We um, we actually ended up getting an Impreza because my okay. wife is not as much of a car nut <laughs> as I am. She's very much uh, just like you. All of you know, she's very very financially astute, mm. and mm. a lot of the reason why I am in this financial position that I am is just her because I've never been good at finance. Mm. Uh, so for her, we looked at the WRX and we looked at the Impresas as well. She just couldn't justify spending that extra $10,000 no matter how much I begged her to get the WRX. <laughs> she couldn't justify it. So we ended up getting a, uh, an Impreza, and, um, which is a lovely car. I mean, for, for that price, you can't really get anything else that's that reliable mm. with that many options already in it. So we did. Still working on my uh, other cars sports as well. Car, a sports car. Well, what is your dream car? car? My dream car. Ah, that that is a very hard question well, to answer. Well, not, not like a you know a Maserati or a Lamborghini or something mm. like that, but something much more achievable. Like right, you know, like an everyday drive sort of car. If you could mm-hmm. name it, what would it be? I guess that's uh, an achievable car that would fit the way that I drive. Uh, probably something like a Boxster Cayman S is beautiful. is a beautiful car. Fantastic, Fantastic car. So I've I've noticed a uh, yeah. Boxer out the back there as well, and that's not that's not the reason, not the reason why, but it's a brilliant car. That's great. Mm. All right, Imran, thank you ever so much for being part of this podcast. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, it's been really interesting trying to get inside your mind and uh, understand the way it thinks and understand your whole journey through your life, which has been absolutely fascinating. So thank you. Um, if you want to get in touch with Imran or myself, uh, probably best to come to my website accountinginsider.net and send me an email and uh, I'll respond to it. Thanks for listening. Thank you.